Uh, wonder whether you heard the story about this psychiatrist who had two kids, um, had, had a, a son who was a, a total pessimist, um, had a daughter who was a complete optimist. And so being a psychiatrist, he decided it would be a good idea one Christmas time to carry out a little experiment on his two children. And so on Christmas Eve, he filled the bedroom of his son, the, the pessimist, with lavish and expensive Christmas presents, all beautifully wrapped. Whilst in his daughter's room, the optimist, he deposited a huge steaming pile of horse manure. Okay. And then on Christmas morning, he opened his son's bedroom door. He saw him sitting motionless in this room full of presents, eyeing all of them suspiciously. But when he opened his daughter's bedroom, he saw her joyfully digging through the odorous pile on the floor. And, and he said, what are you doing? And the daughter replied, as optimists do, well, dad, with all this horse dung in here, there's just got to be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> so which are you? <laughs> are you the natural optimist or are you the confirmed Pessimist. Are you glass half full or are you glass half empty? Um, whichever way we're wired, and I guess all of us tend one way or the other, that tends to play out. Have you noticed this? That tends to play out in our Christian lives uh, as well. You know, some of us are always looking on the bright side of the Christian life, aren't we? We're, we're always looking at the encouragements, the joys. You know, life is good. We're generally very upbeat and, and happy. Some of us are, are more pessimistic. Of course, we, we may focus on the, the battles with sin uh, that, that we feel like we're losing a lot of the time. We find life tough. We, we see there's no end in sight. Um, we can be full of doom and gloom sometimes and, and, and focusing on the discouragements. But while we, I think, tend to see the Christian life either optimistically or, or pessimistically, I think the Bible presents the Christian life to us realistically doesn't it it's a very realistic book that the bible by which i mean that the bible shows us that there is a very real battle going on so, so that if we're always focused on on a you know living a victorious a triumphant christian life well the bible reminds us it's not always like that you know the setback there's hardship there's persecution in the christian life um but to, to those of us who are more pessimistic well the bible shows us there is joy and victory to be enjoyed as well. In fact, the, the victory is assured, isn't it? The events of the cross and the resurrection mean that a glorious eternal future is guaranteed and that there is much uh, joy and, and uh, a gladness to be had in the here and now as well. So I think the Bible is very realistic about the Christian life and, and perhaps no more so than in the book of, of Revelation, which I think is a super realistic book. Um, and we've been looking at it, haven't we, the last uh, few weeks. We, we've been seeing some key themes as, as we've gone through. We, we've been seeing that God is sovereign, haven't we? Chapter 1 and chapter 4, um, he is on his throne. He's in charge of our world. We, we've also seen that the victory of Jesus is assured in, in chapter 1 and chapter 5. You know, we've seen that the big battle in Revelation is not Armageddon in the future. It's Calvary. In the past, the victory's been won. It's been won at the cross and the empty tomb. And, and all that remains is the mopping up operation. And lastly, we've seen that God's people are secure. We saw this in chapter 1 and chapter 5. 
as well. That in the midst of all the chaos of, of life in this world, where Satan is trying his best to upset God's plans, well, he's on a hiding to nothing, isn't he? In other words, because God is sovereign, you know, because the victory's been won already at, at the cross, therefore, God's people are spiritually secure in Christ no matter what. And, and as we fly over these chapters 6 to, to 9 this morning, we're going to see those same amazing truths played out in front of us. Now, we're, we're, uh, you might have noticed as it was read to us, we're entering kind of the main visions of the book here. So the, the vital thing for us to remember is that these visions are not meant to be viewed chronologically. Or, or sequentially. In other words, they're not a timetable of events for us to look out for in kind of the final run-up to Jesus' return, you know, as signs that the end is here. So, yes, uh, God, uh, uh, John uses symbolism, of course, but the symbolism is not some kind of mysterious code that we need to try and crack so that we can work out what's going to happen. Actually, most of it is just symbolism from the Old Testament, uh, from the prophets, and so the way to understand these different visions is not to see them as a sequence of events, but rather as a series of kind of overlapping pictures that describe the same events, but from different angles, different perspectives. Um, it's a bit like watching Wimbledon, okay? Or if you prefer, uh, you know, watching an inferior sport like football or, you know, rugby or, or something like that. Imagine, <laughs> imagine watching a match, on the TV. Well, you know, thanks to a, a whole multitude of cameras on, on the court or on the pitch, um, you're able to watch the game from different angles, aren't you? So you get a kind of court side or a pitch side camera, which then cuts to a camera kind of high above the, the, the playing surface, and then there'll be a camera that kind of zeroes in on just one player on the pitch, and, and, and then maybe a camera that gives you an action replay of something that happened earlier. Uh, in, in the match, or, or a, a flashback to an earlier rally or an earlier goal, something like that. In other words, when you watch a match, you're not actually uh, uh, watching it, um, or what you are actually watching is, is a variety of, of angles, uh, but not necessarily in strict chronological order. And, and, the, and the book of Revelation works in a similar way. Sometimes you get a big picture from a heavenly perspective. We saw that last week in chapters 4 and 5, didn't we? But then at other times, we'll be focused in on a detail. We'll see that in chapter 11. And then at other times, we get kind of action replays, but from different angles, like the seals and the trumpets that we'll see in these chapters, where we're looking at the same things, but from different perspectives. Do you see? So to read the book as simply a chronological account of events just before Jesus returns, I think is to misread how the book's written. It's not a timeline. It's, it's a series of sort of word pictures that use very graphic imagery to help us grasp reality from God's perspective. Now, we've got four chapters, so we're not going to dwell on all the details, but I've got two key lessons that I'd love us to see across these four chapters. And, and the first one is this. We must be realistic for God's judgment is coming. Okay, be realistic for God's judgment is coming. And this is the message, really, of chapter 6 and chapter 8 and chapter 9. And, and if you were here last week, uh, you'll remember in chapter 5, the Lamb, Jesus, has a scroll 
that he is just about to open. And, and we saw that the scroll meant all of God's purposes for the world, both in judgment and also in rescue, in salvation. And now that scroll is beginning to be opened as the seals on it are opened here in chapter 6 and the contents of the scroll is, is implemented. Now you probably know in the Roman world a scroll was, it was just a long piece of parchment really um, uh, which was then rolled up um, and then it was sealed with wax. And, and if the document was a really important one there would be multiple seals on it. And the seals could only be broken and the scroll therefore read and implemented by the person with the right authority to do so. It might well be a lawyer, for example, if it was a will or, or something like that. And that's what's going on here, where Jesus himself is the only one who can open the scroll and implement the, the, the purposes of God. And what you've got in chapter 6 and then in chapters 8 and 9 are two series of sevens. You might have picked that up. You've got a series of seven seals on the scroll, and you've got a series of seven trumpets that get blown in, in chapters 8 and 9. And as we'll see, the theme that gets repeated, um, uh, that same theme gets repeated again in chapter 16, where it talks about seven bowls. So you've got these sets of seven, and accompanying each seal being opened and each trumpet being blown is an event a disaster, a catastrophe, a plague. But remember, they're not disasters that we are to imagine mark the imminent return of Christ. But they're events to show us the kinds of things that will take place throughout these last days, which, remember, is the whole period of time between the first and the second comings of Christ. In other words, John is telling us in, in symbolic language that during these last days or during these end times between Christ's resurrection and his return, that whole period of time, we can expect it to look a bit like this or, or a bit like that. These are the kinds of things that we can expect to be happening during this period of world history. Do you, do you see? In other words, don't look at them like kind of architect's drawings with, with strict you know, dimensions and whatever on them, but look at them like impressionist paintings. So, for example, look in chapter 6, we read about, well, we read about the, the so-called four horsemen of the apocalypse here, don't we? Do you, you see that? A rider on a white horse, a red horse, a black horse, a pale horse. And in popular understanding, those, those horsemen, those four horsemen, come right at the end of time. But actually, no. They're describing, in, in symbolic language, the kinds of things which happen throughout these end times or these last days in which both John and us live. In other words, these sets of seals and, and trumpets are looking at the same thing, the, the whole period of time between Christ's comings, but from different angles. These are the kinds of things that have happened, that are happening, and that will continue to come until the time when Christ returns. And actually, that, that's entirely consistent with how the rest of the New Testament talks about the last days um, as, as well. Here's Jesus, for example, talks about those times in Mark 13. And says, when you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places. There'll be famines. 
these are but the beginning of the birth pains. In other words, when you see all these things happening, it isn't the end, says Jesus, but rather it's, it's all part and parcel of living in these last days between his resurrection and his return. So what sort of things then do characterise this period of history? Um, well, I think we can pick out three that, that John highlights for us. The first of which is that God's power is unrivaled. God's power is unrivaled. And it's unrivaled because behind all the judgments that we're about to see, as, as scrolls are opened, as trumpets are blown, behind all those judgments stands God. God himself. In other words, the sovereignty of God that we've seen in the book so far extends even to him being sovereign over the bad things that happen in the world, which happen because they're a mark of his judgment, his judgment on a world that has rejected him. We live in a world under judgment. So, so look at chapter 6, verse 1. Um, notice that it's the Lamb, it's Jesus who opens the seals on the scroll. In other words, he's the one who brings about the events that follow. Um, Also notice, actually, again and again, um, uh, each of the the four horsemen who are allowed to go off and wreak havoc are given their power or their crown. So the white horseman is given his crown in verse 2. The the red horseman is permitted to take peace from the earth in order that people slay one another in verse 4 and and so on. In in other words, their authority, their power is derived from God. They're allowed to wreak havoc because God allows them to. You can actually see the same thing if you flick to chapter 8. You can see the same thing with the trumpets in chapter 8 verse 2. Um, the, the, the seven angels who are given seven trumpets which announce seven judgments receive them from the throne of God. Verse 2 of chapter 8. You see, these are God's judgments. This is his doing. And friends, we, we see this again and again in Revelation. That God is the one who brings judgment on the world in the forms of disaster and, and chaos. And, and the point is that nothing is outside of his control. He is the one. Everything is under his control. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that God can be charged with sin. You know, God is perfect. But it does mean that his sovereignty, his power, his control over everything includes his allowing of evil to happen. And, and his, even his using of people's evil deeds to accomplish his plans and purposes. Did you see it means that nothing happens in our world, not even the bad things that are outside of God's control. And friends, I think that ought to be of great comfort to us, actually. Um, just, just think about what's happening in the world at the moment. Think about what's going on in Ukraine um, at the moment with this terrible war that's going on. Or, or think about what's happening in our own country with something like knife crime and knife culture among our teenagers at the moment. Or, or think about the cost that's being paid by Christians in certain parts of the world and increasingly here as well. Has, has God abdicated his throne? You know, has there been some kind of takeover? Well, no. No, not at all. His hand is firmly on the throne even when it appears that evil and chaos is reigning. 
because nothing happens that is outside his control. Not even bad things happen without him allowing it. Which means, friends, that we can trust him. Now, questions about why he allows things are still difficult questions. But, of course, evil and suffering with no God, with no purpose, with no design, you know, just blind, pitiless indifference. Well, that's a truly bleak picture, isn't it? But the implication of these verses for us is that we can trust him implicitly because his power is unrivaled. Not even bad things happen that are outside of his control. So what other things characterize these last days then? Well, not only is God's power unrivaled, but also God's purposes are achieved. That's what's happening in these last days as well, because the events that these seals and these trumpets kind of unleash are aspects of God's judgment on a world that's turned away from him. In in other words, they are warning signs that this world is broken, it's under God's judgment, and that people need to turn back to their maker. And and, and notice, um, notice how such judgments happen first on people. Um, with with the opening of the first four seals in in, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. John uses imagery from the book of Zechariah uh, here in in the Old Testament to explain what's happening now. So uh, seal 1 is opened, verse 2. A white horse is described with its rider bent on conquest. Okay, white in in ancient times symbolized victory. So this seems to represent kind of internal conquest. uh, Sorry, external conquest, if you like. Maybe invasion, that kind of thing. And and all of the war and the conflict that that goes with it. Um, Seal 2 is opened, verse 4. A red horse comes out and its rider takes peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. So that seems to be talking about internal kind of civil war, if you like, and all the bloodshed and all the chaos that goes with that. Uh, And then seal three is opened in verse five. A black horse comes out with its rider holding a pair of scales, which is representing all the scarcity, all the inflation, verse six, that accompanies famine. And and then seal four is opened, verse seven, and, and along comes a pale horse, Uh, which depicts death itself. The rider's name was Death and Hades followed him. So you've got a picture here, haven't you, of conquest and war and famine leading to death, verse 8, for a fourth, a quarter of the earth. So not the whole earth yet. This is not the end yet, but it's coming. And actually, all that sounds very familiar to us, doesn't it? You know, just turn on your news app, um, Turn on your 10 o'clock news tonight um, and, and we'll see every one of those things happening somewhere in the world right now, won't we? And in fact, as John is writing these things in the first century, he could have given you examples then as well. You know, the Roman Empire was built on conquest. You know, it was marked by civil war as well. AD 68, 69, Rome was ruled by four Caesars in a year. That's a lot of civil war and strife, isn't it? In AD 92, there was a devastating series of famines across the whole Roman Empire. So these judgments were just as familiar to them as they are to us. And of course they are. 
Because what did Jesus say would happen throughout this whole period of last days? Well, it was wars and earthquakes and famines, wasn't it? And the point here is that God is allowing these things to happen because they're part of his judgment on a world that is in rebellion against him. And when they happen, as they do throughout this whole period until Christ returns, well, they're meant to be warning signs to the world to repent and turn back to him before the end comes. Because we're not at the end yet, but it is coming. And these are signs that it's coming. Um, If you look in chapter 8, the first four trumpets there make the same point, but describe things from a different angle. So these are not things happening to people this time, conquest, war, famine, so on, but things happening to the earth. Um, We we didn't read this chapter, but you can see uh, it's self-evident these are uh, events of God's judgment on creation itself. So as trumpet one is blown, chapter eight, verse uh, seven, you get trees and grass being burned up. Uh, As trumpet two is blown in verse eight, you see the sea turned to blood and the sea creatures destroyed. Uh, As trumpet three is blown, verse 11, you see the water becoming bitter so that people die when they drink it. Uh, As trumpet four is blown in verse 12, you see the cosmos itself being turned to darkness, do you see? Now, we're not supposed to imagine here that literally um, a third of the sea is going to turn to blood at some point in the future, or or that a time is coming when a third of the sun is going to be blotted out. The idea is not that we get our telescopes out, as it were, and look for signs of Christ's imminent return. These visions are here to impress upon our hearts and our minds in in kind of vivid colour that God's judgment is real. And you're going to see it in the created world in which you live. Well, friends, that's true, isn't it? You know, is not our world creaking under the trauma that we've caused it? All kinds of environmental disasters happen, don't they, through humanity's sin. And again, the point here is for us to heed the warning signs that this is not the end yet. The fact that a third of the earth, not the whole earth, is mentioned here, tells us that. But one day it will be the end. So heed the warning signs, says the Lord. And and if you glance quickly at chapter 9 as well, uh, you can see that God's purposes are achieved not only through his judgments on people and and on the, the created world, but his purposes are even achieved through Satan and his forces of evil. As well, chapter nine tends to, uh, seems to be talking about a, a satanic deception of human beings. So, in verse one, look, you've got this star fallen from heaven and given the keys to a bottomless pit. Verse one, that's a reference to Satan, isn't it? And, and again, the vision picks up Old Testament language. Again, it's mostly from the prophet Joel this time. You've got these these locusts coming uh, when chapter five, when trumpet five is is blown in verse three, which, which seem to represent sort of satanic forces that are unleashed on humanity. Verse 5 talks about them unleashing torment on humanity. Uh, And trumpet 6 in verse 13 and onwards, that that satanic control is likened to troops, as it were, to an army that's released to bring misery and death to a third of humanity. And friends, this is what Satan does, isn't it, to those in his control. He ruins lives. He leaves torment and death in his wake. But notice again, verse 18, it's only a third of mankind that's affected. 
So it's symbolic of just a part of humanity. We're not at the end yet. But this should be a warning to us that the end is coming. And and so repent and turn back to God. But can you see what happens in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 9? See that? The rest of mankind who were not killed in these plagues did not repent. In other words, they, they continued in, in their idolatry and, and all of its outworkings there. Do you see, friends, all of these terrible things that happen in our world, these judgments of God upon a world that is bent on rebelling against him, well, they're warnings that present an opportunity for repentance. You, you'll notice that the calamities here in chapter 9, they're referred to as plagues in verse 20. Did you spot that? Now, that's meant to remind us of the plagues that God sent on Egypt to reveal himself to the Egyptians. And friends, the calamities that strike our world too, they're likewise intended to reveal God to humanity so that we would turn back to him. You know, C.S. Lewis's famous quote, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He shouts to us in our pains. They're his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. But do you see what's happening? Verse 20, after all this judgment and all these terrible things that happen in our world, people still don't repent. Have you ever been surprised by that? You know, you're surprised that after all the wars, all the earthquakes, all the famines, all the terrorist attacks, all the floods, all the cancer, everything else, that people still don't heed the warning and see their mortality and the effects of sin on this broken world and turn back to him. That surprise you? Because so many people don't, do they? In fact, these things only serve to harden people's hearts against God, you know, like, like Pharaoh of old. Now, now of course, it's not that um, just because a calamity strikes, that is a direct result of a particular sin that we've committed. But rather, the, the Bible teaches that these things are the results of living in a world which has rejected God, a world under judgment. And so the question is, well, how will we respond to that? Will we curse God and die? Or will we turn to him and live? So what are the marks of these these last days in which John lived and in which we live too? Well, it's a time when God's power is unrivaled, when God's purposes are achieved... But then, briefly, it's a time when God's people are persecuted. And, that, and that's not really a surprise, is it? After all, the, the, the Lord Jesus told his disciples, didn't he, John 15, a, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you uh, as well. And, and that's what we see here when seal 5 is opened in chapter 6 and verses 9 to 11. And John sees, look the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne. Now we're going to see a lot more about that in in the weeks ahead, but clearly one of the marks of these last days that we're all in is that it's a time when God's people will be persecuted. Okay, we'll we'll suffer if if we take a stand for Christ. So, So we shouldn't be surprised, in other words, if we get some pushback or some opposition for taking a stand at school, uh, or at college, or at work, 
or, or within our family and our, our friends, we shouldn't be surprised when we hear snide remarks kind of pushed in our direction or when we get sidelined by people. We shouldn't be surprised when we hear about brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering and even dying for the faith. It doesn't mean that God's lost. It means that this is what it's like to live in the last days. But of course, while it doesn't surprise us, it will grieve us, won't it? And and so God's people have and, and do cry out for justice. Verse 10, look. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And and the answer, verse 11, well, it's a little while longer because the end hasn't come yet. And seal 6, look, in verses 12 to to 17, seal 6 points us forward and gives us a glimpse of, of what that end looks like. And friends, it's awful. There are people in verse 16 crying out to be killed in order to escape the wrath of the Lamb, Jesus. In other words, friends, all these judgments that come with the opening of the seals and the blowing of the trumpets, they're preparations for the big judgment, the final judgment. That is to come. And on that day, as verse 17 puts it, who can stand? And the answer, of course, is that no one can on their own. Do you see the big point in all of this symbolism? It's actually quite simple, isn't it? Although it's deeply uncomfortable, of course. The point is that we need to be realistic. For God's judgment is happening now meaning that his final judgment is coming. And so we need to make sure that we are responding to it in the right way, which is not with hard-heartedness, but with repentance and trust. But if the first lesson from these chapters is to be realistic because God's judgment is coming, the second big lesson here, more quickly, is, is to be reassured Because God's people are secure. Okay, because we were left, weren't we? End of chapter 6, we're left with a question hanging over us in verse 17. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? In in other words, when Jesus returns to deliver the full and the final judgment towards which all the other judgments in our world are pointers, who can stand on that day? Well, actually, the great news is that there are people who will stand on that day. Right? Not because they're good, not because of their good deeds, but because they're safe in Christ. And those people are the people of God. Right? We, we might be tempted to, to think that the people of God are not secure. You know, After all, we've just seen that we should expect some level of persecution in these last days, which that doesn't seem very secure, does it? Indeed, we might look around the church in the UK at the moment and think we're all doomed, <laughs> We're a small minority. We're facing all kinds of struggles and oppositions from from outside and inside. And maybe we're worried about whether we will stand. But things are not what they seem. And and what you notice about these chapters, 6 to 9, is that sandwiched in the middle of all the judgments and the chaos is chapter 7. Right? It's as if John is making a, a, a massive statement to us, even in the way he's structuring the book. 
right? That in the middle of all the chaos and the judgment that's falling on our world in these last days, in the midst of all the seals and the trumpets, yet God's people are secure. There's nothing that can harm us, spiritually speaking. You know, there might be a storm raging around us, but we are safe as God's people. I think that's the the message of chapter 7 here. So if you're a Christian this morning, okay, here are three quick things in this chapter you can take heart from. Number one, we are a sealed people. Look at verses 1 to 8, where we find, look, four angels holding back the four winds. That's, that's imagery again from the book of Zechariah uh, again. And, and notice that the four winds of chapter 7 are the same as the four horsemen of chapter 6. Okay, so the picture is of these four angels who are holding back these evil winds of destruction, okay, from wreaking their havoc on the earth. Why? Because something must happen first. Verse 3, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. That's, that's language from the book of Ezekiel. Uh, where God marks the foreheads of those who who hate sin uh, before he strikes the city in judgment. That's the picture. In other words, putting a seal on the forehead of God's people is symbolic language for saying he is marking all of those who are his. You know, a bit like the the blood on the doorposts in, in, in Exodus. Yeah, so so he's marking all those who are his from, from the four corners of the earth to keep them safe and secure through the coming judgment. And, and that's why John says he saw 144,000 people in verse 4. It's not a literal number. Okay? It's a symbolic number to represent the complete number of God's people that he is marking. It's actually the, the 12 of the 12 tribes of Israel uh, that you, you see listed in verses 5 to 8 that are squared and then multiplied by 1,000 to kind of emphasize fullness, uh, completion. In other words, no one is missed out. Right, If you are one of God's people because you're a Christian and you're trusting Christ, then you are included too. You are safe too because you are his. He's marked you. Do you see? So God's people are secure because we're a sealed people, but also because we are a pure people. Look at verses 9 to 15. And and you'll notice that the image changes there from a specific number, 144,000, to a vast number. In in verse 9, a great multitude from every nation and tribe and people and language. And they wear white robes. Did you spot that in verse 9, verse 13? And why are they white? Verse 14, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Seems a bit weird. Doesn't it? If you splash something in blood, it's going to stain red, isn't it? Not white. But it's symbolic language. Of course, it's to say that people's hearts have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. In other words, through the death of Jesus, they've been forgiven. They've been set free. Set free from sin and death so that they're pure. And as a result, verse 15, can serve him in his temple. In other words, in the new heavens and the new earth. What a glorious picture that is, isn't it? And of course, being a sealed people and being a pure people means that we will finally be a satisfied people. Look at verses 16 and 17. They shall hunger no more, 
neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water and will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Hasn't that a beautiful picture? A beautiful picture of God's people in God's place, enjoying God's rule and blessing. It's a picture of total delight, total contentment and satisfaction found in him as as we're shepherded by the lamb himself. Of course, you might recognize the language because it gets picked up again in chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation, doesn't it? And it's a picture of heaven, of course. And friends, the point is that if you are in Christ today, nothing can take that from you. You are secure. And friends, as we just close off these, these chapters, I reckon it's worth pondering on them very deeply indeed, don't you? Because it, it is just so easy to feel, you know, as, as we look at the apparent chaos and carnage, both in the world at large and, and, and perhaps in our own lives as well, that we ourselves are at risk. You know, maybe you feel that your Christian life is just so small and weak that, that it could be sort of knocked over by the slightest gust from, from the winds of life. Well, friend, take heart from the amazing truths of this word. Because right? John here, he calls us away from either uninformed pessimism, which we might feel, or naive optimism, which we also may feel. And he calls us to biblically informed realism by reminding us that we, like him, like John, live in the last days, the end times when God's judgment is falling on the world and God's people are likely to face persecution. But God is totally in control. He is sovereign and his power is unrivaled and his purposes are being achieved. They will be brought to fulfilment. And whilst whilst that means that times will be tough, yet his people are secure. So if that's you this morning, well, friend, take heart because you are sealed by God. You are safe because he's marked you. You are his. And you are pure, not because of what you've done, but because he has washed you clean. Which means that one day you will be totally satisfied in him forever. And friend, if you're not in Christ yet, can you see from these chapters That when the day of the wrath of the Lamb comes, chapter 6, verse 17, there is only one place for you to be safe, and it's in Christ, the Lamb who died for you. So can I plead with you to come to him for safety? Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we, uh, we thank you so much for these chapters um, which give us both a, a reality check about the times in which we live um, but also which reassure us that you are sovereign, your power is unrivaled, your purposes are being achieved and your people are secure in Christ. So, so may they lead uh, each of us this morning to find our safety in Christ too. And we pray in his name.